all the latest business news from WA. Mark my words, your weekly news briefing. Welcome to Mark My Words. I'm Mark Pownall and I'm joined by Mark Byer. Coming up in this podcast, new premier, builder collapses, urban infill, PwC, BHP, Perth Airport and Ben Roberts-Smith. First up, Mark, it's been a huge week by any standards. Uh, the premier, Mark McGowan, started the ball rolling on Monday, resigning and all that leadership conjecture that ensued afterwards. Uh, yep, look, one of those exciting weeks to be a journalist um, and uh, really fun to observe all the political machinations that have gone on here in WA over the past week. We've learnt a lot more about the Labor Party and how things work there. Um, and we've also got this sort of really fascinating scenario of Roger Cook facing the big test mm. of becoming Premier. So, look, what a week. Uh, yeah, Monday morning, Mark McGowan shocked everyone uh, with his announcement that he just didn't have the energy to keep on going, didn't want to sit, go through another election. So he's called time, given the new leadership an opportunity to establish themselves, what, 20 months out from the next election? Yeah, halfway through the term, effectively, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've moved on very quickly to the new leadership, but worth just reflecting. Uh, Mark McGowan was lauded by a whole range of community and business groups for his contribution. Uh, you got to say, like any leader, doesn't get everything right, but... Uh, he was extremely successful, yeah, as well, reflected in yeah. his two very big election wins. Yeah, especially the last one. Um, the commanding authority that he had over the government. Um, so did a lot of things very well. Uh, in terms of the leadership, uh, look, I think early on there was a thinking that a, a combination of Roger Cook and Rita Safiotti was the logical outcome here. Um, and that's what ultimately proved to be the case, albeit with that flurry of excitement when, for a while there, Amber Jade Sanderson looked like she might get the numbers inside the Labor Party. Yep. Uh, she got some backing from one of the key unions. But it was really quite encouraging, I think, that the sort of some wiser heads in the Labor Party and in the government said, well, hang on, Who's got the experience? Um, who's going to deliver continuity? And clearly, Roger Cook and Rita Safiotti delivered that. Um, Amber Jade Sanderson might get her day in future when she's got a bit more experience under her belt. Um, if she were, had won, it would have been a really quite dramatic upheaval for the government um, and really thrown a lot of uncertainty into the future. Uh, most likely now we're going to have a, a high degree of continuity. We'll learn a lot more next week after Roger Cook is confirmed as Premier and then he will allocate ministries. Bound to be a few changes. He'll have to reward a few people that backed him and there'll probably be some people bumped out of the ministry. Mm. Uh, and that, some staff, I mean, key staffers that have been, you know, that sort of close alignment with the Premier... What happens to them? Do they inherit that position or do, does Roger Cook bring his own people in? Uh, yeah, look, a bit of both, I imagine. Um, 
you know, some of those key people like Dan Pastorelli, he's previously worked for Rita Safiotti, so they may see a role there. Um, you know, others like Kieran Murphy and Dave Coggan, they've worked for multiple Labor leaders over the years, so may well continue under Roger Cook. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, Roger Cook will want to bring in some of his own people. Um, so look, overall, we shouldn't really expect any dramatic shifts in the policy direction of the government. To me, the big test is some people can be a really good deputy, a really good minister, but then when you've got the added pressure of being the leader, of being the premier, some people thrive. Uh, Mark McGowan did. A lot of people, though, just really struggle. And we don't know yet how Roger Cook will go. Yeah, and I think, Mark, to be fair, I think, you know, McGowan did, you know, he, he won... He won an election, you know, five years ago and, you know, governed, you know, moderately well. I don't think anyone would have anything particularly negative to say pre-COVID. But but COVID was a completely different environment where for nearly three years, instead of the normal hierarchy of government taking place, it was very much the Premier with some kind of health-related people. And I guess Roger Cook was there as health minister, but health experts were, were much more closely aligned to government um, and aided, I have to say, by an opposition and a federal government that was Liberal that took a different tone and tack in terms of the way things should be done and probably regretted that. But, uh, you know, so, you know, you didn't... It was one of those times where you got that big, that marked differentiation. So... The win that McGowan had in the last election was really on the basis of COVID and was really on the basis of him. And as much as Roger Cook inherits that electoral um, win because he gets, you know, all those parliamentarians, he doesn't quite 100% come in with that factor of being, you know, that person who did it. And I think also just by the fact that he's had to go out and uh, lobby for votes and have there's some winners and some losers means that he'll have to deal with that uh, straight away. Um, and so those are different. That's just a marked difference in his role as Premier, I think. Anyway, yep. it'll still be really interesting. Yeah, look, Mark McGowan was unusual. He was not aligned with any of the factions in Labor and his electoral success gave him a commanding authority over the party. Um, and as to your earlier point, he's one of those rare politicians that was very good at reading the mood of middle Australia. Mm. You know, I used to liken him to John Howard, which he probably wouldn't appreciate because they're on opposite sides of the political fence. Yep. But they're two political leaders you know, that read the mood of the public at large and did so very successfully. Yep, totally. Anyway, look, watching brief, uh, not much more to add there, uh, except, as you say, we, st- we, we understand more a little bit from this how the, uh, the Labor block works to some degree. Uh, now, uh, Mark, there's been uh, more problems in the troubled construction sector. Yeah, two notable notable developments uh, this week. Uh, another construction company has gone bust and there's been a warning about a second construction group. Uh, the Slatter Group, uh, that's a company that was set up about 20 years ago by Mark Slatter, been operating, um, done a whole range of projects over that time, particularly... A commercial builder, right? That's the... Commercial builder, um, primarily in the education space, had about 15 projects on the go, so fairly significant, Um, had done work for Murdoch University 
Mandurah Baptist College, Penrose College, Aquinas College. Mm. Uh, so, you know, seem to have a, a good track record. But they've called in the administrators, Sam Freeman and Claire Bailey from EY. So they've now taken charge. And when we spoke to them during the week, they were busily, as administrators do, just trying to work out what's the situation. Yeah, right. So we still don't really know what's gone wrong, as usual. They haven't worked out the the level of debts. They've halted work on all the projects, so they'll try to hand them over to someone else. Uh, But no doubt, those factors that have caused issues for other construction companies, rising costs, labour shortages, blowouts in time, all those difficulties. And then... The other one, uh, the state government body, uh, the, the industry regulator, it's called Building and Energy WA, they came out with a statement cautioning customers, subcontractors and suppliers over a business called Modco Residential. Now, Which hasn't collapsed, that we're aware of. No. Uh, but readers of Business News... Uh, would know we've run a number of reports on Modco Residential, um, yeah. as have other media. Um, there's been a whole range of sort of rumours and, and worries and customers who've gotten into trouble, subbies who are not getting paid. Um, I guess this is really interesting that it took this long for a warning to come out. Yeah. Obviously, it's it's a big call for a regulator to come out like this because if they get it wrong obviously the business will sort of come back and seek yeah, some well, redress there might be some sort of liability in that yeah uh, but in this case they've been trying to communicate with the company's directors and with their nominated supervisor to get an understanding of the company's financial position neither has responded yes. so that's a, a fairly telling indicator there yeah um as I say, they've heard reports of savvies not being paid, um, a number of court actions already being launched for unpaid debts, and pointed out that all re- registered building contractors can only build with an effective nominated supervisor. Now, Modco is failing to tick any of those regulatory boxes. So um, if you're out there, keep clear. That's the message. Mm. Uh, and this was a company that boasted about the fact that it signed up, uh, one salesperson at Modco signed up 84 new home contracts in the space of four weeks a couple of years ago. They were promising that they could get houses built in 20 weeks. Mm. Going to be a lot of disappointed people. Yeah, I mean, oh, the building game. I mean, I think, first of all, there's this issue around the stimulus and you know, how unfortunate it was that that then ran into this supply chain problem uh, and labour shortage at the same time, although labour shortage is probably a little more predictable than the supply chain stuff that came. Um, I guess what worries me about the building game is how, you know... I mean, people put a lot of money into houses, you know, as in... You know, the the, uh, the clients, you're talking about people who don't have a lot of money borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars to build a house and finding that they've got, they don't have a house in a time when rents are skyrocketing as well. Um, and, you know, I've looked at this building business for a long time and I'm not saying anything about, 
either of these companies, and especially on the residential building side, is more of my concern. But the you know you do get people who seem to go under and then turn up again in business, and there doesn't seem to be a lot of penalty in that. Now I don't know that there's any ac- I can make any sort of accusation around that in this case, uh, and I would definitely be cautious about saying that. But if you're making promises that you maybe I mean, has anyone ever? Can anyone build houses in twenty weeks? Has anyone been? I mean, that's a that's an amazing kind of claim to make. So, with a degree of caution, I think a lot more needs to be done in this field because it's it becomes a political problem, and that's where regulation ends up coming in. Is when you know lots and lots of people lose money, and they turn to the government and say, "This isn't fair. Fix it." And that's kind of what I think is going to happen in this instance. Um, anyway. Interesting times, and we'll watch with interest. Now, um, Mark, uh, urban infill may not be as easy as it seems, uh, even when the public trans, even when we put public transport in there to sort of make it happen. The Property Council of WA put out a really interesting report during the week, and it was focused on what's the good locations for more density. Uh, particularly this is the term transit-oriented development, which basically means more density, more apartments, more activity around train stations. Yep. This has obviously been a big theme for the state government with their Metronet program, so building extra rail lines, which includes you know, going further north to Yanship, going further south to Byford, um, out to Ellenbrook. And part of the state government's pitch has always been that where they build uh, the extra rail infrastructure, that creates opportunities for developers to build a hub around the train station. The Property Council report has really challenged that thinking and said, well, look, no, you're not going to get that outcome around every train station. Uh, what they well, hardly found, any train stations, but the Well, that's it. right. Uh, They've said, look, there are areas that lend themselves to more development and typically they're in more established locations uh, around those the old train lines. So they've highlighted Leaderville with their number one spot. Yeah, right. So, you know, it's close to the train, close to buses. There's uh, a lot of people that live there already. There's a really good mix of residential, commercial, retail... Uh, cinema, cafes, bars, that whole, what makes life interesting, that mix. Uh, It's also very close to two major employment centres, being the CBD and Osborne Park. True, yep. Yep. You're just about ride a bike, so you you don't actually need the public transport in some cases when you talk about Leaderville. Yep. Um, Other areas that they've highlighted, uh, Cottesloe, interesting to see what the local residents down there think. Mm. Uh, Maylands, Burswood and Bayswater. So Bayswater is designated as a Metronet project because there's a big upgrade happening out there yep. because that's where the Ellenbrook line um, and the airport line yep, both, both sort of run off. Yep. Um, other areas that have potential, West Leaderville, uh, Fremantle, Cannington, which is a bit further out, uh, Coburn Central, which has been a bit of a focus. But it's certainly those those five that I mentioned early on saying that they've got the attributes and the, the, the feedback from the industry was don't try and get more development and more density around every train station. 
just focus your effort on the areas where there's the biggest opportunity. Yeah. Longer term, because this is sort of, you know, those areas further out, they may well develop in time, but it's not an area where we should be focusing our attention now. Yeah, right. And effectively, the Property Council is saying, don't expect builders and developers to come and, you know, do your dirty work, so to speak. Yeah, and the way this report came together, it was actually a lot of consultation between the private sector developers and government agencies. Mm -hmm. And they spoke of it saying that you you don't normally get that level of consultation. Um, So that was a really constructive exercise, I found, and of a kind I don't see a great deal of. So I thought... You know, a really good contribution to the debate. Um, yeah, look, key line from the report, government investment should be targeted at high-value, high-opportunity locations, um, you know, destinations that have an, an enabling environment that will encourage private sector investment. Yeah, all right, well, look, uh, you know, I guess I'm thinking I, I can't exactly pin down when I first heard the transit orientated development line but it would have been 20 years ago or so I think when maybe longer when that Mandurah line was going in and there was development going on around new stations around that Um, and when we drive down that freeway and along that railway line I don't necessarily see a whole heap of urban development right at those train stations so you know there's some evidence there that the kind of talk of the Todd hasn't actually happened. I think Coburn's a really probably rare example where there is a significant development right there at the train station. But even there, and we've reported, there's quite large tracts of land that have sat there undeveloped for quite some time. And that's not a new station. It's been there for a while. So, um, you know, obviously uh, some of these ideas take decades to come but you'd still have to set them up I guess in a way with your planning to allow them to happen when they're ready. And look just another example of how the market uh, can actually have a a bigger impact than government plans. Uh, We had another report during the week WA Planning Commission has approved a 19-storey apartment development in Claremont Mm. uh, which is not one of the locations listed in that Property Council report which surprised me a little um, I think part of the thinking was that there's already been substantial development there and therefore limited scope for further development. Yep. Um, but this was an example. This was a location on St Quentin Avenue, so basically between St Quentin Avenue and Stirling Highway. Yeah, okay. um, there's an old church there, so it's just adjacent to that, right next to Claremont Quarter, um, close to the shops, close to commercial activity, um, and a part of Perth that a lot of people want to live in. Mm. So another hundred-odd million-dollar development. Um, again, opposed by the local council. Town of Claremont didn't support this one, but the WA Planning Commission has come over the top and said, you're all set to go. Yeah, bad luck. Okay, interesting. Now, Mark, you've done quite a bit of work on this story. What's the latest in the PwC consulting scandal? It just keeps on rolling. Mm. Uh, Monday uh, was a big day in in the PwC story. Uh, That's where the company went on the front foot and and tried to, I guess, regain some control of the narrative um, with limited success. Uh, That's when they announced that nine partners had been directed to take leave. Uh, But 
Importantly, the company resisted calls to name there was 50-odd partners and staff who had received emails related to the uh, use of confidential government information that was subsequently used to help their clients uh, minimise tax. Uh, the other piece of news, Justin Carroll, Perth audit partner, has found himself as national chairman of PwC Australia. Yeah. Uh, now, this whole issue is very much focused on tax, the tax division on the East Coast. Uh, yeah, well, I was so going to say, it shows just how far Perth is out of the Canberra bubble when, you know, oh, we'll get someone from Perth because they won't have been involved in any of this. Yeah, well, look, Matt, Justin was already on the firm's national board. <laughs> yeah, fair So enough. he was sort of in that, we, I don't know if it's the right place at the right time, but uh, mm. he's the person that the job's fallen to. But yeah, an audit partner from Perth, well distanced from the uh, the issues here. And so we're not aware if there is actually anyone in Perth embroiled in this scandal, are we? No, we're not. Uh, I mean, my guess is probably not, but we don't really know. Mm. Um, and this is part of the problem, that PwC doesn't want to name the individuals involved, um, other than, of course, the, the person at the centre of it, uh, Peter Collins, he's the tax partner. He's now subject to a uh, federal police inquiry yeah. um, for potential criminal charges. And they've Obviously, named a couple of other leaders from that area, um, and I forget their names, but they have named yeah. a couple of other people who have been stood down or whatever. Well, and of course, the, the, the former chair, Tracy Kinnair, she stood yes. down, so that Justin's replaced her. And the, and the, and uh, Tom Seymour, the... The chief executive. chief executive is, is taking early retirement. That's right, yep. But in terms of the people involved in this, I mean, clearly they don't... They're presumably still going to assert their 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 innocence in this. Yeah. Um, and more broadly, one of the things that PwC came out and said was that there's been an assumption that everyone whose names were on the redacted emails must necessarily be involved in wrongdoing. Mm. Uh, PwC saying is PwC is saying that is incorrect. Uh, we believe the vast majority of the recipients of these emails are neither responsible for nor were knowingly involved in any confidential breach. Yep. The problem is that when you fail to name anybody, including the nine that have been stood down, yep. it tarnishes everybody else. Correct. Because outsiders are unsure. Are you one of the clean ones or not? Mm. No, Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think that it's sort of scandal 101 and usually the pressure comes from the people who are not named, as in, sorry, wouldn't be named because they are haven't had any involvement. Eventually they will push for the naming of those who are because they get tired of being asked or finding themselves limited in their professional capacity because no one can be sure. And I mean, that's that's my experience of the way these things unravel. Yep. Look, I think the other thing that the company did, you know, they apologised profusely, said they should have acted faster. They've endeavoured to ring fence other parts of the business. Um, the federal government is PwC's single largest client, yeah. doing huge amounts of work there, hundreds yep. of millions of dollars yep. every year. Yep. Uh, the, the response that we're hearing from a lot of government agencies is, well, A, in many cases, we're contracted to use PwC at the moment. We can't get out of it. 
but every opportunity that they've got, they're applying more scrutiny, scrutiny and certainly will apply a lot more caution in future in awarding work. Yep. So it's going to be tough for PwC to come back from this, particularly when you've got the Prime Minister describing it as a terrible indictment. And Mark, it's, it's look, I mean, I think the 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 scandal, and I, look, I'm planning to write some something about this for the next magazine, um, but the numbers are staggering, right? So, uh, and, and there's variance in the numbers that I've seen, but I think on the various reports that I've dug into, the, the most consistent number that I can see is that PwC uh, earned about $400 million over 10 years from the federal government from consulting. Now, they actually earned from what I can tell, about $1.4 billion from the federal government over that period be, uh, through another form of what they call body shopping. So actually providing people as labour within. So the expert, expert was became a, effectively an employee in-house rather than just doing consulting work. It's kind of similar but different. Um, and, you know, that happens all the time in private, uh, private sector. You know, you're a lawyer at at a company, you'll go in, in-house for a while uh, at a private company to do some period of work, six months, because that's a cheaper and more effective way of doing things. Um, but it's big business. Uh, and this there's not just the conflict of interest in terms of, or, or, or this ethical problem that they've had, but there is other conflicts of interest that that I think the government was attuned to anyway and has already made promises about reducing this so in a sense the uh the pwc scandal has just given ammunition to the government to do what it wanted to do anyway which is reduce contracting reduce consulting and bring more of that expert and grow and you know it's a labor government they want to grow the public service and have that expertise in-house as much as possible not everyone in industry thinks that's possible and uh so we'll see where the balance lies um, now, a major resources company BHP was found to have underpaid its workers about four hundred million. So I suspect there'll be a few people in Western Australia who uh, are captured by that. What exactly happened, Mark? Yeah, look, the latest example of uh, underpayment by a large employer in Australia: about thirty thousand current and former staff of BHP are caught up in this one. They've announced two uh, issues that they've discovered. Uh, the first one that affected the vast majority of those people started around 2010, and they found that leave had been incorrectly deducted when some employees uh, took time off to then work on a public holiday. So I think with, like a lot of these underpayment uh, cases that have come to light, there seems to have been a relatively small systemic problem in payroll systems which affected a large number of people over a long period of time and then cumulatively it's uh, come at a huge cost. Um, so in this case for each of those employees there was an average of uh, six leave days in total that were incorrectly deducted over a 13-year period. Yep. Uh, they've also come out and said that Oz Minerals the Adelaide company that they bought uh, just a month or so ago finalised that acquisition. Their preliminary investigations suggest that they've got the same problem. So there may well be 
other businesses again who are using the same systems, who've made the same mistakes. And, and the nub of it is, basically, unless you ask someone to work on a public holiday, they can't be deemed to be working on a public holiday. That's, that's the guts of it, yeah. 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 And they didn't ask them. Apparently, yeah. yeah. Or there's no evidence they asked them, I guess, would be the truth. Yep. Um, and then separate from that, about 400 employees at Port Hedland, uh, they were entitled to additional allowances that they didn't get, again, because an error in their systems and in their contracting. So the real detail has not yet been released by BHP. Um, they've just sort of got the, the scale of the problem. A lot of work to be done. But, gee, look at some other companies. Uh, Woolworths, they're facing a bill of about $570 million mm. for underpayment that they've discovered. Uh, Commonwealth Bank, $50 million. Qantas was about $7 million. And I remember when these sort of numbers came out, we thought, gee, that's a lot of money. Yes. But, you know, <laughs> at another level now, you know, the ABC, $12 million. So Bunnings, Super Retail Group, you know, a whole you range it. of extremely reputable organisations. Two observations here, Mark. First of all, you know, you and I, we're employees of somewhere, business news. We don't probably check our pay packets like we should and wouldn't have a clue if we're underpaid unless, you know, something really jumps out. Um, and so I think that's the first thing that, you know, over 10 years or longer, thousands of workers, no one sat down and actually went through and had a look. And the second part is why is it big companies and big numbers? Because probably they've got the wherewithal to go back and check um, and they've got the longevity. Lots of small companies come and go. I mean, I mean, I guess Business News has been around for 30 years, so I don't know, are the records there? Would we? How, who would go and check? The, I mean, who would have the capacity and the resources to go back and check that stuff? It, it takes something extraordinary, uh, extraordinary amount of resources to do it. Um, you know, this is a, it's a strange territory to be in. Um, and if, I know that it sounds, this would sound terrible, but honestly, if people didn't miss it 10 years ago, what, what does it matter? <laughs> I know that sounds terrible, but no one was trying to rip anybody off, I don't believe. It's just an accident. And it wasn't probably, you know, someone missed a day here and a day there. And I know it all adds up over 10 years and it sounds like a big number, but really at, at the individual level, it's probably not that great a thing. Okay, but that also then ties into the regulatory response. Uh, the coalition government back in 2017, they put in place some fines for cases where underpayment was discovered. Uh, there's a federal government body, the Fair Work Ombudsman. They said that last financial year they recovered $532 million in underpayments. Mm. So I guess this gets back to your point, though. For each individual, might not be a lot but collectively it really adds up. Yeah, sure. The Albanese government has put out some proposed reforms that would take it to another level. They're suggesting fines of up to $4 million in cases of underpayment and even the possibility of jail time. Now, in that case, they're talking about employers who turn a blind eye to systemic issues and recklessly underpay staff. I agree with you. The vast majority of cases, it's just inadvertent, careless, small errors 
that have a cumulative big impact. Yeah, and I think the biggest issue here is that the cowboy land people who do this are at the very small end of business. They get away with it. They phoenix their companies and disappear. And and in any case, it, the reward of trying to track chase those people down, certainly in terms of getting recompense, is near. You know, it's it's, it's pointless. Um, and so we see that, like all these, well, it's the big companies. So some some accounting error in a big co- payroll error in a big company versus the small guy who doesn't pay superannuation for two years. You know, to my mind, that's the small guy is a, is a way more criminal act if you want to call it that. And yet, it just it seems to go unpunished. Now maybe it does come down to you know if it's a criminal act, it needs to have intent, and therefore there is some sort of you know jail time or real huge fines or anyway uh in the end and i've had this discussion with a few people in recent times you need decent penalties to get people to act properly because you know being nice and voluntarily trying to do the right thing doesn't seem to work um mark jason waters leaving gold corp to head to perth airport that was kind of a bit of surprising news this week it certainly was. So Jason Waters had been at Synergy, the, the government energy utility, for a number of years as CEO there. He was hired a year, year ago to run uh, well Gold Corporation, so that's the government business that owns the Perth Mint. They've had all sorts of issues, and Jason was seen as the person that was going to go in there and clean it up. And, uh, and we didn't know they had all sorts of issues when he came in, did we? That, that sort of emerged later. Some of them had come to light. Yes. More have come to light since then. Yeah. Um, so there's issues around you know, who they've been buying their gold from, uh, issues around the quality of the gold bars that they've been selling. There's an Austrac investigation into the uh, whether they comply with their anti-money money laundering rules. And then the state government has foreshadowed a major strategic review which could include the possibility of selling the Perth Mint. And they're they're also losing market share is another more recent bit of news. Well, that's right. Uh, So uh, ABC Refinery, that's the big competitor, I mean, the only substantive competitor within Australia for the Perth Mint. They announced during the week that they, well, sorry, a couple of weeks ago that Bellevue Gold, so they're uh, about to uh, commence mining at a su- very substantial new gold mine in WA. They've selected ABC as their refiner. ABC tells us they've now got um, eight significant gold mines in WA alone and, and others in other parts of the country and overseas. Back in the good old days, Perth Mint used to refine 99% of the gold that was mined in Australia. Mm. Uh, that's bit by bit by bit slipped. They're now saying their market share has fallen to 79%. Mm-hmm. Uh, that implies that ABC does about 21%. ABC dispute that. They claim their market share is 31%. Uh, now, whether or not that's right, even just on the Perth Mints figures, they've suffered a very big fall in yep. market share. Yeah. So look, a whole range of challenges there. Um, but uh, Jason Waters has decided that there are greener fields. So he's gone off to Perth Airport. Yeah. Um, he'll be replacing Kevin Brown, um, who listeners might recall has gone to run St John WA, the yeah. ambulance service. Yeah. Uh, 
the airport itself. I mean, gee, they've had their challenges, particularly during COVID. Um, but you know, under private ownership, um, and a, you know, lots of opportunities there. Um, so look, a very significant shift, um, and we'll be hearing a lot more about Jason in terms of what he does at Perth Airport. You know, number one issue there is their relationship with Qantas. <laughs> you know, they've been in the courts fighting each other. Never a good thing when you're in a legal fight with your number one customer. No, it doesn't look uh, great. But that ties into their long-term plan to consolidate all the uh, services at one location around you know, the, what we think of as the new terminal. Yeah. Um, so look, lots to go on there with, and but then even even bigger challenges for Perth Mint. So Sam Walsh is chair of the board there, and they'll have to go out and find someone else, mm. which will be particularly challenging when the government's doing a review and contemplating whether or not they want to own it. Yeah, well, there's you know, I've learned over the years there's always someone who wants that job. You know, it's it's it you've got to cut. Your t- Sometimes it's someone who's cutting their teeth, but you know, it's someone who's willing to take on the hard the hard job. And there are people who just thrive on that stuff. Finally, Mark, let's touch on the matter of Ben Robert Smith, whose defamation action against various newspapers was dismissed. Another big story this week. It certainly was, and this has implications for. Um, I guess for us in the media around defamation law, um, also big implications, I think, for Kerry Stokes, mm. who bankrolled Ben Robert Smith's legal action. Um, so the core of it, of course, Ben, he was awarded the Victoria Cross in 2011, um, seen as a war hero. Uh, he was subject to some very critical reports in uh, 2018 uh, by what the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, The Canberra Times. Yeah, which are now part of the nine... Group. News group, whatever yep. it is, yeah. Uh, he responded by launching defamation action against them, and that was uh, the, the publishers ended up with a comprehensive victory. So the claims that they've published that he is a war criminal, a murderer who breached the Geneva Convention, the court has effectively said, You're allowed to say those things now. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I'm saying them now on air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that the now I guess a couple of key points here. Uh, this was a civil trial. It was a defamation matter in the federal court. Um, it's not a criminal trial, so obviously there's a different level of proof there. It's a balance of probabilities rather than beyond reasonable doubt. So none of these findings have been um, established in a criminal court. Nonetheless, nonetheless, yeah, and I, nonetheless, I'm probably going to say what you said. You're going to say that, in effect, it was seen as the trial of Ben Robert Smith, whether whether he likes it or not, and he brought the he brought the action. So, you know that that was his decision. Uh, it wasn't pretty, and it's really you know blown up in his face, so to speak. Uh, so, you know whether or not we'll now see criminal charges from this is yet to be known, but in effect, well, you've just said it. People can call him a murderer and there's not much he can do about it. Mm. It's disturbing. Now, the cost of these sort of court actions, I think it ran for 100 days, um, so well into the millions of dollars, um, only possible because Kerry Stokes bankrolled the legal action. Now, uh, Kerry Stokes, amongst many other roles that he holds, he, of course, um, controls Seven West Media, so the Seven Network, the West Australian newspaper, as long, along with many other businesses, and 
was for a long time chair of the Australian War Memorial. So we had a particular interest um, in, in issues around that and Ben Robert-Smith. He employed Ben as uh, state manager of his seven business up in Queensland mm. um, and then privately funded the legal action. So could prove uh, costly to Kerry Stokes, um, money he can afford, I'm sure, but nonetheless, um, a financial cost and reputational cost. Yeah, yeah, and look, and I mean, I think, and I'm going to go a little bit of a diatribe here, Mark, but, you know, I think the reputational cost is obviously, you know, it's not just Kerry Stokes or Ben Robert-Smith, it's the SAS, it's the Defence Force, and ultimately it's the Australian Government and potentially all of us, really. Um, And now my strong view on this, and it's not just a personal view, I've seen it written many times, that there was... You know, the, I think the Australian government's fear of sending troops overseas in large numbers and having them return in body bags le- has led them down this route of leaving it to the SAS to do all the heavy lifting. It's only a small number of people, and arguably they come with less logistical support, less, you know, of all those extra people who are in the army but not actually fighting and who. Uh, just it just reduces the amount of people who are likely to get killed, and to a degree, I think by the nature of the SAS, we kind of accept that. Oh well, that's kind of the job that they do more than any others, uh, and as a result, those guys were overworked to the degree that is just unacceptable, in my view. And and this isn't a new. I mean, people were writing this in the mid two thousands, and it went on and on and on for more than a decade. We, they, we expected a small group of people to do everything and then we want to pe- point the finger at them when under enormous pressure in an, in an environment that's not normal in, by any means, even by war environments. Um, now, that is not to excuse any behaviour and don't get me wrong, but, you know, other people have to take some blame here. Uh, and the last point I make is, you know, with hindsight awarding people Victoria Crosses when they're still in service and they're still around and they're sti- and it's still fresh and still going on is fraught. And, you know, I think it made Ben Robert-Smith a much greater lightning rod for all this kind of stuff that has been going on. And, and we know that through that Brereton report that the SAS, or parts of the SAS, appear to have been, you know, doing things they shouldn't have been doing, including war, potential war crimes. Um, but to put it all on one person is, uh, you know, it's a shame and a mistake. And do I feel for him? Not so much, because I think perhaps this defamation action was his own decision. But, you know, I think the way, if you look back at that reporting that caused all this, the sort of attack on our... On, our, on certain individuals and certain people and the way they acted. It's a bit unfortunate, I think. Anyway, there you go. That's how I feel about it. Okay. Um, well, that's the end of that, Mark. Uh, thanks for your time. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au.